This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film show and podcast that takes a look at current films and theaters and compares them to films from days gone by, either through a director or an actor or maybe a genre of film that uh, ties them all together. And this week, we're going to be looking at the work of distinguished film composer Carter Burwell in uh, in our segments to come. My name is Stephen Cook, and at the moment, I am a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. Hi, my name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we'll be looking at Carter Burwell's work, including his new films, The Banshees of Inishirin and Catherine Called Birdie, right after this. So it occurred to us here on Lends Me Your Ears, uh, which I hope is your favorite film podcast. I'm presuming a lot there, but uh, that we've never done a show focusing on a composer. And who better than Carter Burwell to be our first? Now, Burwell is a New Yorker born in November 1954, best known for all his work with the Coen brothers, which we acknowledge. Of course, we're being a little bit perverse to have a look at this composer's work and steering clear of the Coens on this episode. Entirely. Uh, which I know is strange. But the reason for that, and it's a good one, is that, I mean, I think we've mentioned it lots of times. We want to devote a whole episode to the Coens, maybe when they make a new film or if we'll you know, find some other excuse, but we just want to do it all Cohen's walled wall Cohen's. And so I, you know, I really, I'm looking forward to that inevitable episode. Yeah, if they ever even work again together. Oh, gosh, don't say that. I really <laughs> hope they do. Um, now, according to Wikipedia, Burwell scored three of Todd Haynes' films, three of Spike Jones's films, and all the films of Martin McDonough. So that just shows you how versatile he is. He's received Academy Award nominations for Best Original Score for Carol from 2015, uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri from 2017, and we'll see what this year brings. Um, now, you know, talking about musical accompaniment and composers in films i i sort of thinking about how i react to to music on in movies and i'm always amazed when a music feels inseparable from a film i think about like hans zimmer's interstellar score tangerine dream or or, (laughs) (laughs) yeah or yeah or inception um you know or in thief or risky business or vangelis in blade runner or the bounty rykuder in paris texas these are some of my favorite scores of course the immortal john williams and all those spielberg and george lucas movies and superman and bernard herman with hitchcock and john barry and james bond that's like themes that go hand in hand with those movies in a way that they simply wouldn't be as good without them and those are the ones of the sort of you know composers that draw attention to themselves and then there are the composers whose work feels almost invisible and i think burwell is much more in that camp um you know off the top of my head i i don't think much about the music from coen brothers films with the maybe exception of miller's crossing um or you know oh brother where art thou um or you know where there is diegetic movie music within the film um but that was t-bone burnett doing the music right there you go yeah or or you know inside lewin davis um but it doesn't it doesn't draw attention to itself a lot of the time and i think maybe that's what it makes makes this uh composer carter burwell so much of a draw is because he just he is able to sort of step back and allow his music to subtly lift us or give a scene a certain kind of tone and a, and a mood 
Um, I think maybe the worst kind of composer is one where the score is a distraction from what we're watching or turning the drama really syrupy with too many heavy handed, you know, elements. Like uh, James Newton Howard, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not one of my favorites. No, he's one of my least favorites. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes not necessarily the fault of the composer. The director might have chosen to, you know, bring up the music in a way or, or edit it in such a way that makes it feel an imposition to the quality of the film. Uh, so anyway, so that, that's kind of my thoughts about composers before we start to fly into Carter Burwell. I mean, I, Stephen, do you have a, do you have a favorite composer? Well, I, I, I probably have to default to Ennio Morricone, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, just, yeah. Uh, and, and there's, I mean, there's a composer whose music is, is undeniable and, uh, certainly I, iconic if i may use that overused word but certainly you know if you're going to talk about the score for the good the bad and the ugly or or even de palma's the untouchables uh you know later in his career i mean those scores just uh jump out and grab you but but and 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 sometimes it feels like morcone wants the film to serve his score <laughs> rather than the other way around but he was a genius, so it, it somehow worked. It may not work with another composer, but but he's certainly one that comes to mind. You mentioned Bernard Herrmann and uh, you know his work with uh, I mean Hitchcock, obviously, but also you know Martin Scorsese on uh, Taxi Driver and and uh, the fantasy films, the uh, the uh, Ray Harryhausen films that he scored are all amazing and all completely different. He was able to work in a lot of different. Um, a lot of different kind of genres, and and clearly uh, that was a big influence on Carter Burwell because he seems so versatile and is able to sort of draw from different styles and and basically do whatever suits the the material that he's working with. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true in the films that we watched of his, uh, and including the two newest ones. And since um, you've seen a little more recently than I have, Stephen, and I know you have a personal connection to where this was shot, do you want to tell our listeners about the Banshees of Inishirin? Sure. And actually, before we do that, do you, do you know what Carter Burwell's Nova Scotia connection? Oh my gosh. I didn't know there was one. I found one. I found one. He, uh, he did some music for some productions with the Mabu Mines Experimental Theater Company, which is a New York based company, but it was established at Philip Glass's house in Mabu Mines, Cape Breton. So (laughs) I don't know that Carter Burwell's ever actually been to Mabu Mines, but he has composed work for some theatrical, uh, pieces that were performed at the New York version of Mabu Mine. So that's the very tenuous Nova Scotia connection. All right. Very good. Carter Burwell. But, uh, but, and Banshees of Inishirin, I, I guess if you, uh, head out to sea and, uh, go in a straight line, you will wind up on the Aran Isles in the Galway Bay of, uh, of Ireland on the West Coast. And, uh, that is where the Banshees of Inishirin is set. Although Inishirin itself is actually a fictional island, but the, uh, the island of, uh, Inishmore is one of the prime locations of, uh, of the film. It's, it's a desolate rock stuck in the, in the bay off of Galway. You have to take a, a small ferry to get there. Uh, it's pretty remote, pretty cut off. There isn't a lot to do once you get there. There's like one pub, uh, which we see in the film and, uh, they make pretty good fish and chips actually. And I, I was lucky enough to go there in the early nineties and I'm, I'm dying to get back there. I have a friend who lives outside of Galway and I, I have a place to stay if I ever, you know, I'm able to, to find the time and energy to, to fly to Ireland and, and, and do the circuit again. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, but again, if living there would be an entirely thing altogether. And that's kind of what we get, uh, in the Banshees of Inishir and written and directed by Martin McDonough, uh, set in the 1920s, uh, and, uh, during uh, the uh, Irish rebellion and, uh, which is a constant presence through the film as the characters hear the sounds of gunfire and explosions coming from the mainland and just wondering, you know, what, 
those crazy mainlanders are up to. And basically what happens is uh, we look into the, the friendship between two men uh, or the uh, the end of a friendship between uh, Colm Doherty, played by Brendan Gleeson, and Patrick, I'm not even going to pronounce his last name. Um, I think it's, it's, it's the Gaelic version of Sullivan anyway. Uh, and it would be pronounced something very similar to that played by Colin Farrell. And basically they're lifelong friends who've lived on this Island. Uh, and, uh, all of a sudden one day, Brendan Gleeson's character, uh, Colm, who's also a musician. He's a, he's a, he's a sort of a renowned fiddle player that the students come from the university of Limerick on the mainland. They come over to, to learn new tunes and, and sort of do their folkloric uh, research, uh, into the Island, uh, through, uh, through his playing and through his stories. And uh, just a, one day he decides that uh, he doesn't want to be friends with Patrick anymore. And uh, so basically, you know, Patrick spends most of the film trying to find out why, find out what is going on in, in Colm's head. And uh, it just uh, it just goes from bad to worse because Patrick just will not give up. He won't take no for an answer. He, he won't uh, respond to Colm's wishes to just leave him alone, let him have his pint in silence and let him uh, get on with uh, playing his fiddle tunes. And, uh, you know, he takes great offense to it. And, uh, you know, to the point where Colm threatens to cut off one finger for every time that, that Patrick bo- bothers him. And uh, one of his own fingers, one of his own fingers. Yes. Not one of, not one of Patrick's fingers, but one of his own fingers, you know, and he's a fiddle player. He needs his fingers. So that's how serious he is. And, uh, and of course there are some mixed single signals there when, when other, um, events take place and it looks like maybe there are threads of that friendship that are still in place but uh but Colm's a complicated guy and uh clearly suffering from some form of depression um and uh it's it's you know it's it's hard for a guy like Patrick who's a kind of a meat and potatoes kind of kind of Irishman to figure out what's uh what what is the black dog that's got a hold of his friend who is uh, has suddenly put up this wall between them and 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 basically it's just that relationship and getting to the bottom of uh you know the what what it is about friendship and what it is about trying to have some sort of legacy uh that drives this film and and, and Martin McDonough tackles it in just brilliant character creating style yeah absolutely you know it's 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 not just this central pair that i mean they are the the core of the story but it, it has a seismic impact on the community colm's decision including sort of local wild boy played by barry keoghan and and his father who's the cop played by gary lyden and uh, the bartender at the pub played by pat short and then the sort of witchy old lady played by sheila flitton um and you start to wonder who of like how they all sort of survive and and how they all connect with each other and and um you know and the fact that um and in between these men who seem sort of like and sometimes they feel like over overgrown boys uh is siobhan um patrick's sister carrie con played by carrie con and she's terrific in this um and uh you know she's kind of trying to make peace between them but in fact everyone wants peace between them because it's just it awkward and difficult and some of this is is very funny and some of this is just so melancholy it's it's an interesting balance between you know you wonder which of these men has it worse off in terms of their sort of mental health and as the picture explores the importance of their friendship their relationship to the people around them and to the animals in the story they're important roles to play as well but the the constant danger and the tragedy of loneliness it's all um you know it all just it is sort of over it, the waves of it. It's an interesting film because it doesn't feel like it has a, a, a real sort of three act structure in the way that some movies have. It's just this sort of like 
episodic changes and one thing leads to another to another and all of a sudden the the stakes get higher and higher and and it gets sadder and and uh and weirder to be honest yeah um, and in a way as uh, siobhan the sister is the one we care about the most and ultimately you, you almost you care more about what happens to her than what happens to either you know colm or Patrick. they're all they're both being kind of selfish in their own peculiar way and and siobhan is this kind of is just kind of watching from the sidelines watching her life you know, kind of ebb away and wondering what she's going to do. So she doesn't wind up like these two. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, the fact that this, this, you know, this, what is this really about? As you say, it's about uh, friendship and community, but it's also about legacy and all Colm's concerns about wanting to be an artist and leave something behind that's worthwhile and that his relationship with Patrick is somehow taking him away from that opportunity. Um, You know, and these, these actors, I mean, I have had a lot of time for, both of them for years now and to see them working again together so well after you know this is the filmmaker gave us in bruges where at the time i was like oh these are really great actors but now years later they just feel like they've they've much more weathered and much more confident in a weird way than in that previous film even though i still feel like in bruges is my favorite of the mcdonough films um i i am so impressed with the performances and i i've been hearing rumors that uh farrell is likely to earn himself an academy award nomination for this film well it's tough because you know gleason is right up there i think of all those great irish characters he's played like from the guard and the general where he played a, a i think a belfast crime boss uh, in an amazing uh, portrait and, and, and here, uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not being a show pony at all. He, he's just, he fits in so well with the cast and with this kind of sense of community and, you know, the, the, you know, giving us brief flashes of this unknowable man, you know, and, and flashes of violence or beautiful music or what have you. And speaking of which, I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about Carter Burwell's music. It's, uh, he doesn't go the easy route uh, in terms of what you might expect from a from a drama set on a you know a rustic Irish island. You know you'd expect to hear lots of lots of those Irish bagpipes and fiddles and so on. And 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 uh, you know they don't go down that road necessarily. There there is a certain Gaelic lilt to the score, but he he avoids a lot of the obvious uh, kind of touches you would expect. And I think that uh, helps the uh, the film a great deal. Yeah. Again, it's it's. If I think back on the film, I don't necessarily think about the music, but what music there was there was perfectly chosen and, and well-placed. So, yeah, I'm with you there. Um, yeah, it is a uh, it is a special film, though. It's kind of I, – I, I walked – I remember I saw it back in Toronto in September, and I, I felt uh, – at the film festival there, and I felt – I guess I felt good about it. I don't know that I, I loved it, but it's in time since, I guess – he reading other people's takes on it and trying to come to terms with what the message of the film is. It's, it's kind of seeped into me and I would definitely like to see it again at some point. Now, our second film is Catherine called birdie. It's a new film from Lena Dunham, uh, who does not appear in the film and, uh, is, is kind of, but you can, but you can sense her, 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 qualities in the in the script oh, yeah, absolutely in, in, yeah. in the in the humor in the film and uh and uh, just uh in, in in its attitude and then it's uh and it's forthright depiction of some some pretty amazing women living at a hard time in the middle ages uh i guess in the what the 1300s or yeah something like that 1300s i think yeah about 600 years ago and uh, we've got uh, Bella Ramsey, who's an amazing discovery, is a, a young girl named Bertie. She's coming of age, and her father is Lord Rollo, who is uh, – his family's fallen on hard times. He's 
come mostly, squander the family fortune. Mostly due to him, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes buying tigers. <laughs> That's and, right. And, and, and basically squandering the, the, the family money and, and not making the best use of uh, the family lands and, and uh, you know, getting the, the, you know, the money out of the, the crops that are grown by the serfs. And I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a lesson in, uh, you know, medieval fiefdom, but, uh, but there's elements of that there. And, and so his, his goal, uh, him and his wife, uh, Lady Aislinn, Ashlyn, I should say, that's how you pronounce it, but played by Billy Piper from Doctor Who, who uh-huh. took me forever to recognize. I didn't realize it was her until partway through the film. And, and uh, they realized that the, the best thing they can do is marry their daughter off to a, a rich lord or landowner and then siphon off some of their fortune to save their own estate. And, uh, and, but Bertie is smart and resourceful and will have no part of it and basically schemes at each turn to take these suitors and, and, you know, repulse them basically. Uh, and, and also try and keep her parents unaware of the fact that she has in fact, uh, reached puberty and, uh, you know, is of marrying age as it were. And, and so, so basically she's got these, this kind of twofold mission and it's, it's quite funny and quite touching and, uh, and, and by turns a little bit tragic too, uh, you know, as, as the father, you know, he loves his daughter dearly, but at the same time, uh, <laughs> there's a family business to take care of and he's really torn in, in, in these decisions he has to make. Yeah, it's funny how this film, based on a young adult novel, so it does have a lightness of touch, uh, but it is dealing with some serious, it's a feminist, you know, uh, drama in many respects while still being a comedy. It's like this young woman has no options. She is basically forced to be doing what she's doing. And it's, you know, we, you definitely get a sense of, of how limited her, her choices are. And that's, that's where the tragedy is. Um, uh, but, uh, and there's also other aspects going on in the family that are very difficult as well that she has to sort of face up to, but we get, see the world through her eyes and Bella Ramsey is just wonderful. I I remember her very briefly but potently uh, playing Lyanna Mormont in Game of Thrones. So she's another Game of Thrones veteran. She's not the only one here uh, in in the in the film. Uh, Paul Kay, who plays a very whiskery uh, suitor, um, he was also in Game of Thrones. And we see very briefly Russell Brand, who's quite funny <laughs> yes. in a single scene, and a lot of other great supporting casts. Uh, you know, people who she really loves in her family. Uh, her favorite uncle, played by Joe Alwyn, and a new aunt, played by Sophie Okonedo, and her best friend. Played Played by Isis Hainsworth and a good chum, the the Goat Boy, played by Michael Wolfitt. Uh, they're all just this lovely cast of characters, and you know, for the most part, Bertie just wants to have fun. She re- she really does, and uh, and you know, the sort of bop 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 of these of the soundtrack, uh, you know, to bring it back to Carter Burwell is just makes it also charming and almost like a 1960s like uh, romp. You know, there's like there's a real there's a real uh, throwback, but also modern element to it all. Yeah, Lena Dunham produced this with her husband, uh, whose name escapes me. I, don't, I can't remember if it's. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. I, uh, anyway, but uh, they kind of produced it together, and uh, you know, they they definitely had this this great idea to do these kind of folk versions of pop tunes, which. Uh, works way better than, than it should. Uh, yeah, I love the cover of uh, the Alaska's Connection. Uh, I really enjoyed yes. that. Yeah. And and then uh, Carter Burwell, uh, as you mentioned, he does these kind of kind of vocal choral uh, scores with very little instrumentation, and it works perfectly because, of course, a lot of music would have been like that uh, at the time. But uh, it's not necessarily trying to accurately recreate uh, 
you know, Renaissance choral music, but, but it has that, uh, lightness of tone that, uh, that sounds sort of almost period, uh, period perfect yeah it's funny how i associate that with the 1960s like the the kind of comedies that we saw then i guess and many of the renaissance you know films from that era he had that kind of a score yeah those swingle singers kind of voices that bop, 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 you know yeah doing burt Bacharach songs or whatever. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's it's a, such a charmer this film i've seen it twice now it's on amazon Catherine called birdie and it is really a delight and it's a lot to do as i mentioned with bella ramsey but um it's uh, also, you know, just the, the the full cast, and I think the fact that um, Lena Dunham, obviously, if you're a fan of Girls or some of her other work, uh, she's an extraordinary talent, and it's I haven't seen her do much for a while. I gather she has another feature film out, but uh, this is the first I've seen from her in a while, and I was just it's such a pleasure to watch it. Um, it did remind me a little bit of a film like The Little Hours, which was a comedy of a couple of years ago, which also coincidentally starred Girls alum. Jemima Kirk, but uh, this picture isn't quite as adult and and outrageous as that. But uh, but in terms of a period comedy, uh, I think they would make a great double feature. Um, yeah, and so uh, so yeah, definitely recommended. I, I think Birdie is uh, Catherine called Birdie is 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 something special, and and I mean it does. I think teenagers, you know, of a certain disposition would would absolutely love it. I think, in fact, you know, I've recently saw. Millie Bobby, Bobby Brown in the Enola Holmes sequel, and I feel like this is something of that ilk. It's a it's a little more modern, a little more sharp, but uh, but it's I guess I I can't help help compare these these young actors who are really really grabbing their first roles with a lot of you know a lot of intensity and and really impressing uh, right out of the gate. Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. And this show is dedicated to the work of film composer Carter Burwell, who is uh, best known for working with the Coen brothers, but we're not looking at any of those films because we hope to do a Coen brothers show at some point. But but there is a, an interesting quality to the films that he does do outside of that realm. Works with a, some very interesting directors and 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 picks stories that you know are often kind of densely told with lots of twists and turns. And, and uh, this film, we're going to go back a little bit in time uh, to earlier in his career and a film called Waterland from 1992 directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal, who is the father of actors, Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal, but he's a, a director in his own right. Uh, he worked on, um, the original, uh, Twin Peaks and then made a film called Paris Trout with a very interesting Dennis Hopper portrayal. That was, uh, kind of an art house hit. And then, um, Waterland was the film he made immediately afterward. And I, wasn't a big hit. So I'm, it kind of led him down a path of doing a lot of TV movies, I think, after that. But he's he's an, he's an interesting talent, and he picks interesting material. Waterland is a, a very uh, literary story taken from a novel, uh, kind of a memoir by um, Graham Swift, uh, set in England, uh, but then kind of split between England and the United States in the Peter Prince screen, screenplay with uh, Jeremy Irons as a uh, high school English teacher in Pittsburgh who uh, his students are express their, their boredom with history. They don't understand why they have to learn about history. And then he kind of puts a personal spin on it by telling them about his childhood growing up in England between the, the first and second world wars and his, um, his experiences coming of age with uh, the woman who's now his wife, who's uh, kind of suffering from dementia and has uh, has a problem with wishing she could have a baby, even though um, 
due to circumstances of uh, of her younger years, could not have children. And uh, so, so basically we get this intertwined story of, uh, of flashbacks within flashbacks and uh, also the current day story where um, he's uh, pondering his future as a high school history teacher and uh, is thinking about perhaps moving on, especially uh, given some of the circumstances happening in his own personal life. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a densely layered film. It, it can be a little hard to keep track of at times. Jeremy Irons is great, though. And uh, Sinead Cusack plays his wife, Mary, and uh, it, it's a terrific performance as well. And it's nice to see some familiar faces like Ethan Hawke, who plays his, his most uh, inquisitive student in his class, who keeps wondering uh, about history and the importance of learning about the French Revolution and so on. And we also get uh, Lena Headey, who uh, many people will probably know from Game of Thrones. She plays the young version of Mary uh, in, a, in, you know, in a wonderful performance in the flashbacks. And plus, it gives this great uh, portrayal of this area of England called the Fens, where it's basically reclaimed land, kind of like in, in Holland or the, like with the Acadian dike lands uh, down on the Bay of Fundy, where they've basically beaten back the ocean with, with dikes and canals and, uh, and it leads uh, to uh, an area that's very fertile for, for irrigation and so on. But it's also kind of desolate and grimy and, and, uh, not a place you necessarily want to go back to. And, and certainly, uh, young Tom, uh, wants to escape. Although I don't know that Pittsburgh would exactly be <laughs> considered an escape, but, but that, that's the setup. And, and there's, there's a bit of a mystery as to what happened in his childhood and some of the things that happened to his, his brother, who some people call potato head, um, because, uh, he's, um, he has some uh, mental issues and, and, and that's basically the kind of the, the coming of age Romana Clef that we uh, that we get here in in Waterlands. Yeah, it's one that it's funny. We watched a couple of movies. The next one we'll talk about is the same issue. It's just uh, films that they just do not make anymore. These these are the kind of stories that if they exist have gone to series work. I think um, Waterland, uh, an ad- adaptation of a sort of a Tweedy novel uh, of of you know this kind of a drama. Just you just don't see it very often in in feature films, and and certainly not made this way with with a, an older man thinking fondly about his his childhood and then actually sort of importing his students into his memories uh, and showing them around the places he grew up or the places that his parents grew up before he even existed. So it's it's very uh, flights of fancy in its, uh, in its structure. And some of that I found kind of interesting. I definitely liked the relationship between um, the Ethan Hawke character, the, his, his sort of most outspoken student and his teacher. I thought those scenes were pretty great together. And I, I thought the, the sexual content is surprisingly frank, uh, though some of it hasn't aged so well, considering Jeremy Irons imagines one of his precocious students naked in the classroom, which seemed a little, yeah, a little icky, uh, to say the least. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, there are things to recommend Waterland, I think, and uh, great seeing Pete Postlethwaite and John Hurd in small roles. Um, you know, and, and and again, bringing it back to Carter Burwell, his score includes distant choirs and yearning strings in a way that I think uh, brings a certain class to the production. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has that elegiac feel as as uh, Tom sort of goes wandering through the mists of memory. And it's, I, I mean, I think we both feel it's a fairly uneven film in the way it tells this story with 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 some highlights and then some some overplaying and overplaying of its hand and then and the whole conceit of bringing the students into the past and actually have them interact in the memory itself is interesting, but it's pretty 
quickly dropped like a hot potato. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not something that's carried through. And, you know, maybe if they'd made more of that, it would have made it stand out a little bit more. But it's, yeah, it's the sort of thing that we'd see on PBS Masterpiece or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So let's move forward then to Bad Company from 1994, which is available on Hoopla, incidentally, uh, directed by Damien Harris. He's the elder son of Richard Harris and brother to Jared Harris, I discovered. This is an interesting film, given its pedigree. Um, you know, Harris shares directorial credit with uh, with James Hong here, but I actually couldn't find any corroboration with that claim. That's that was on Rotten Tomatoes. But it's interesting that Hong plays a heavy in this film. Um, now, Bad Company is a title of a film. It's like lots of features and short films going back to the 1920s are called Bad Company. This is the one from 1994, um, and it's about. A character, Nelson Crow, played by Lawrence Fishburne, kind of a dicey, dicey, you know, uh, not exactly a nice guy. Someone who has a history with covert operations. He gets hired by a private company looking to put his blackmail skills into good use. A company run by Mr. Grimes, played by Frank Langella. And Margaret Wells, played by Ellen Barkin. Also on board are Michael Beach and Michael Murphy, two of the hardest working men in show business, and the late greats, Spalding Gray and David Ogden Styers. Um, so as Nelson and Margaret get work, getting to work on buying a judge, played by Ogden Styers, amongst other important people, Margaret convinces Nelson that maybe they should own this company. They should take it over from Mr. Grimes. Um, and it's called The Tool Shed and eject him. Now, Grimes may as well be a James Bond villain. It's a good thing they cast cast Langella because he can pull that kind of thing off. Um, And then we discover that Nelson is actually working, though quite begrudgingly, for the CIA. This is a movie with, uh, it's a very noir, lots of terrific sunglasses. You know, the 80s had been solidly shaken off by this time in the 90s, but we weren't quite at the Matrix level yet. Um, But it has the sort of feel of the sort of slick modern noir, the kind of movie where you never know who to trust. Um, the look of the film maybe hasn't aged quite as well. The apartments look all look like sets, lots, lots of dark colors and deep reds. But um, And brutalist architecture. Yes. Lots of concrete walls. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I like Carter Burwell's touch here, the strings and the piano. It's pretty solid, um, maybe a little cheesy in places, but that kind of suits the material as well. There's, there's not a lot here that feels terribly realistic. This is, this is noir with the capital N. Yeah, it's funny that, uh, I mean, we've done shows on neo-noir and somehow this film has eluded us and yet it's, <laughs> it's a perfect example of it. Uh, you know, maybe not top tier neo-noir, but, but certainly, uh, it delves into kind of the, the trashy aspects of it and you, you kind of get a little bit of the, the kind of a double indemnity in the world of corporate espionage. Like it's clearly what they're kind of going for. And I like the fact that it takes place in the era before cell phones and and internet search engines. So, so that uh, a lot of shortcuts that could have been taken uh, with those tools at the ready uh, are not available to these characters. And they, they really do have to get by on their wits and their instincts and trying to figure out who's, uh, who's doing the double cross and, and all that kind of thing. And that, that, uh, that really appealed to me. And, and yeah, Carter Burwell's score, uh, you know, I wrote, down that it was just like this constant feeling of unease and and kind of having to stay on your toes i feel that that thread runs throughout the music in the film and and i mentioned uh morricone's untouchables uh earlier in the show and i i feel like that was a touchstone for him in this because we get a, some of those martial drums and those kind of discordant strings and things happening at the same time and i feel like he must have been inspired on some level by that when he's uh, scoring this film 
Yeah, and I also want to just note that Ellen Barkin is terrific here. I mean, she plays this sort of like, you know, noirish femme fatale, but she's she's so intense and, you know, knows what she wants and is is at times incredibly uh cold-hearted and other times quite vulnerable and she somehow makes it all work i mean she's she's a, i think an underrated performer yeah it's a terrific performance by her we can't have enough ellen barkin yeah, in the world absolutely well let's move on to gods and monsters then from 1998 directed by bill condon who will mention again another film that he he worked with carter burwell on uh later on in in the show but it's based on a christopher brahm book the father of frankenstein it purports to tell the story of james wales last day this is the director of frankenstein and the bride of frankenstein he was living in relative comfort in 1950s hollywood but his health was not uh, is best and he suffered a stroke and he's played by uh, Ian McKellen he's being taken care by his housekeeper Hannah played by Lynn Redgrave and but enjoys being out and unashamed I mean that's what I think is pretty revolutionary for the period and also for a movie from the late 90s basically they this character being quite proud and unashamed of, of being gay yeah and, and he gets to know his his landscaper played by brendan fraser who's having a bit of a comeback right now with the whale which is about to open in the next few weeks and uh fraser is is great in the whale incidentally but he is um really good in this and i had not seen this before and i was just taken by how charismatic he is and he's so good in this film so yeah i am um, overall i felt like gods and monsters didn't wow me as much as I thought it would. I felt like the performances make it worth watching, but I just felt it was a little heavy-handed and a bit much relying too heavily on flashbacks and connecting, you know, his whale's experience in the trenches with his work making undead monsters come to life on the big screen. I just, I thought that was a bit much, but yeah, I, I, and I wasn't crazy about Redgrave who I didn't think her film and her, her role in her German accent was also way over the top, but, uh, but yeah, for that key central two performances, that's what makes this worth seeing. Yeah. If you've only seen Brendan Fraser in Encino man and the mummy, uh, this is definitely a big change of pace. I mean, I think that was the case for me when I saw Gods and Monsters in the theater when it came out. And I, th I think maybe that's why I have a, maybe a, a bigger fondness for this film, uh, you know, and, and, and being fascinated by Whale and who, who never made any secret of, of, uh, of his life and, and never tried to hide in the closet and anything. I, I find that really fascinating. And the fact that it doesn't touch on it here, but one of his discoveries was the actor, David Manners, who is from Halifax originally born in Halifax. And he's in the mummy. He's in Frankenstein. He's in, or no, he's in, um, he's in Dracula and he's, um, He's in uh, the first uh, film that James Whale made, uh, Journey's End, a, a drama about the, the First World War. And I, I always wonder what the relationship was, uh, if, if there was something more to it than just uh, him being a mentor. But I, it, there's, the, there's really no uh, no evidence of that that I've seen, at least. And uh, but it but it is interesting because David Manners later in life um, was uh, quite open about being gay, and that's one of the reasons why he left Hollywood because he didn't want to live that sh kind of charade life that you have to live when you're in the spotlight like that. And, and, uh, but, but this kind of gives you, at least gives you an idea of what, uh, what, uh, what people lived through when they had to kind of hide their life, uh, under, uh, under a bushel back in those days. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more stories to tell that are like that, but, uh, this is certainly one of the most prominent. Yeah, I mean, again, I like the performances. Uh, I thought that Burwell's score here was fine, though it occasionally adds a bit to the film's syrup. Um, yes, yeah, it is. Know. It is of, of the films that we watched. It's certainly one of the most uh, kind of 
profoundly obvious <laughs> scores that, that it really makes its presence known in a way that it doesn't necessarily in other films. Yeah. But uh, let's move on then to Three Kings from 1999, also on Hoopla, directed by David O. Russell, written by Russell and John Ridley. Now, Russell is, uh, he's, he came out with something recently, the poorly received Amsterdam, which I went to see, and it's a bit of a mess, but it's, uh, again, stuffed with amazing actors. Uh, he's kind of a controversial figure in Hollywood. He's known to be abusive to his crew and to his cast, but actors clearly still want to line up to work with him, so go figure. Um, Three Kings is an American war satire indebted, I think, to films like Catch-22 and MASH to some degree and tells the story of four American soldiers. George Clooney plays the major with Ice Cube, Mark Wahlberg and Spike Jones uh, acting, which is unusual for him. But uh, yeah, there there is they're all soldiers. It's the end of the first Gulf War in 1991. The Americans went in ostensibly to drive the Iraqis out of Kuwait, which they did in next to no time. And these guys, they're just sort of kicking around enjoying their victory, uh, hearing about gold bullion that Saddam took from Kuwait and they've hidden and he hid in a bunker in a village. So they go looking for it. And of course, they're looking to get rich. Instead, they instead find themselves moved to help the people suffering under the cruelty of Saddam's imperial guard. Um, but this is in no way a movie about heroes. It's a dark comedy about desperate people uh, and about the responsibility these men end up feeling towards the very people their military bombed. Um, and it also works in some degree as an action movie. I mean, there are exploding helicopters in this movie, so that that tends to be a... <laughs> And exploding Nerf footballs. That's right. Um, you know, Russell directs in a very high contrast. The desert is all white and the blood is all black. And it's the style, which is quite distinctive, though. It also dates the movies late 90s. There were lots of filmmakers doing yeah. this kind of thing at the time. Um, and I on Hoopla, up, they I think they uploaded the film in the wrong aspect ratio because it's very weird looking. It is. Yeah. There's something wrong with that transfer. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in some ways, I think the film seen 20 years later feels a little naive. I mean, the idea that Iraqis would find any security in Iran, for instance, or that the Americans did a lot of good in Iraq would be proven wrong in the years immediately after this film came out. But it's certainly not a bad movie by any stretch. Uh, it's funny to see Cliff Curtis playing Iraqi with a New Zealand accent. Um, that struck me as, as interesting. Um, but yeah, and, and Burwell's score here has a lot of drums, and, I, and they kind of sound like steel drums. They may be electronically produced, but I, I really like the score of Three Kings. Yeah, it kind of creeps up on you, because early in the film, we're getting a lot of sort of diegetic and, and kind of needle drop sort of music, like songs. And then uh, as, as the, the drama kind of intensifies and our, our – I'll quote unquote heroes uh, get deep, more deeply admired in this situation that they've kind of dug for themselves. Uh, the score starts to come more to the fore uh, as, uh, as as things progress, and it's it's very effective in the way that it's used and the way that it ratchets up the tension with with percussion and and so on. And it's it's very effective. But uh, I, yeah, you're right. The, the style of this film really does place it firmly in the the late '90s. But I I feel like the film does have enough to say about the the dangers of getting kind of wrapped up for for all the wrong reasons in in middle eastern affairs and and how that any time that a western nation sticks their foot in it tends to make things worse uh, before they get better yeah um, oh, if yeah. they ever get better and i mean that's that's kind of an obvious thing to to say but uh but at least this this shows it with a lot of kind of energy and, and, and humor and, and, and uh, to me, it, it feels kind of like a man, the man who would be king, but set in a sort of reset in a modern, uh, 
modern version of, of the Middle East. Yeah, I definitely can see that that indebtedness for sure. Uh, and that's one of the things I liked about it. It also felt like I like that it um, it kind of feels like a heist movie, like it's going to be a heist movie until they actually get their hands on what they're looking for and then it changes entirely. Yeah, yeah you think it's going to be Kelly's Heroes and then it turns into something else entirely. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So we have a few more movies to talk about here uh, on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears as we check out the work of Carter Burwell, a, a very prolific and versatile composer who has had a long career in Hollywood. And we're going to talk about a couple movies here that uh, have something in common. The Hoax from 2006, which is available to be watched on Amazon here in Canada, directed by Lassie Hallstrom. And uh, The Fifth Estate, directed by Bill Condon, who did, of course, Gods and Monsters. And uh, what the thing these films have in common is that uh, uh, they are, they're both have extraordinary casts and uh, based on true life events and very sort of uh, difficult uh, intense sort of leading characters and both vanished without a trace. Like neither of these films did. They both bombed at the box office. I'm not sure if either of them opened here in Nova Scotia where we're living. I don't think either of them got any kind of theatrical release. I would have, I'm sure I would have remembered and given the casts involved, I would have wanted to go see them. Um, so let's start with a hoax. It's a weird one. Um, and it's, uh, Halstrom, I guess, directed Sterling Cast, Richard Gere in the lead, with Alfred Molina, Hope Davis, Marsha Gay Harden, Julie Delpy, Eli Wallach, and Stanley Tucci all on board. Uh, and it's got one of those on-paper fascinating stories, a real-life con man basically explaining how he got a major publisher in the United States, McGraw-Hill, in 1971 to give him a massive advance for the writing of, of the so-called authorized biography of Howard Hughes which he made up entirely. He was using materials he'd stolen to fabricate the story. Um, you know, and I, I just, like, this is, what a story. Yeah, a lot of creative license went into, like, a, a thin whisper of factual, uh, you know, data and information that he gleaned about Howard Hughes and then just basically creates this thing out of whole cloth, figuring that Hughes is weird enough of an, enough of a recluse, he's not going to make a stink about it. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. I think I was, I kept thinking about why this didn't work, uh, for audiences, let alone why it doesn't quite work as a movie. And I think it's around this point that Richard Gere sort of fell off the A list. I mean, he may have aged out of it, but I don't think people were paying to want to see him on the big screen anymore. And his character isn't someone you end up caring about. I mean, he's a sleazy liar and gear doesn't exactly sell him as likable. He's got this adoring wife played by Harden, but he's having an affair with Julie Delpy who treats him badly, you know, and, uh, and I feel for Harden in this because she really has to wear one of the worst wigs in Hollywood history. <laughs> um, but I did like 
The part of the film I enjoyed was how it makes fun of the business of publishing and makes them all look like a bunch of chumps in their desperation to have the next big thing. Um, the scenes in the meeting rooms where Clifford, that's the Richard Gere character, tells his tall tales, that's something to see. I mean, that's pretty entertaining. But it just, there isn't much of a heart. There's no one here to really care about. And I think that's where the film goes wrong. Yeah, it's, he's, a, he's a prickly character. And Gere gives a great performance. Like It's one of the lively, because I always think of Gere as being kind of a laconic kind of actor and, and not someone that I get really excited about. And here he's, you know, he, he's, he's a little more pumped up and energetic than I'm used to seeing him in films. And he has this great friendship banter with Alfred Molina, who's his kind of his researcher and his wingman basically. And, and I love the, the relationship between the two of them. Molina's character is, is, is kind of an oddball as well. And, you know, a lot of my fondness for this story probably has to do with the documentary about, uh, uh, Clifford Irving that was made w- by uh, Orson Welles. He made a film called F for Fake. Oh yeah, in right. the nineteen seventies, right. and which is a better, much better film, really, uh, than than the hoax. And maybe that's part of the problem that anybody who wanted to see this story told went for the Orson Welles documentary, which starts off uh, being about uh, art forger um, uh, Emile Dehore, who uh, Clifford Irving wrote about, and then shifts gears into being about uh, being about. Uh, Clifford Irving himself and the whole story of the, the, the Howard Hughes hoax. And, and then also creates some, some fabricated stuff on, of its own to kind of trick the viewers. And it plays kind of a trick on the viewers as well. It's, it's certainly a lot more clever than, than the hoax is, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a story that you'd want to see told twice. And anybody who'd seen that for fake probably didn't bother with it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, it does get more implausible as it goes along and Irving gets a lot more delusional and more unpleasant. Um, and Carter Burwell, to bring it back to Carter, he score the score is up-tempo, horn-driven affair, which really swings with all the lies, I thought, you know? I thought, actually, it was, it was one of the, the scores I really liked. Yeah, it's good. It's like small combo kind of jazz rock, and mm-hmm. it, re- it really works. But uh, there's some insanely on-the-nose needle drop uh, soundtrack cues here, like way too much Credence Clearwater revival well, for you my know, liking. Unfortunately, that's true of most movies that have Credence in it. That's true. <laughs> We've just had enough. I mean, not that nothing against Credence, uh, you know. No, I band. love the band, but, but their yeah. music has been, you know, shorthand for early 70s and or Vietnam for way too long. Yeah, way, way too long. Um, so The Fifth Estate, which is on Disney, is about Julian Assange. And it's it's based on two different books. Inside WikiLeaks, my time with Julian Assange at the, at the world's most dangerous website, and WikiLeaks Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy. And, you know, it's packed wall-to-wall with stars, and they must have been drawn to the script or the material, the director, and yet this movie, I don't remember getting any kind of release. Benedict Cumberbatch plays WikiLeaks founder as a driven, charismatic guy with a lot of personal demons, even neuroses. Much of the story, however, is told through the eyes of a hacker colleague, Daniel Berg, played, played by Daniel Bruhl, who worked with Assange from around 2007 through 2010, and how Assange demanded he sacrifice everything for the cause, but then didn't trust many of his decisions and was quite paranoid. Uh, the film works hard to do a difficult thing, which is making people sitting in front of computers yes. thrilling. And I don't think it succeeds, but then so few films really do. Yeah. I, I, you know, if you see red text, it's bad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if it goes from blue to red, oh, something bad just happened um, on the computer. But then you've got actors like Peter Capaldi, David Thewlis, and Dan Stevens, who show up as journalists with Alicia Vikander in a largely thankless role as Berg's girlfriend, um, and then American 
government security functionaries are played by Laura Linney, Anthony Mackie, and once again, Stanley Tucci. Um, yeah. Tucci. We can't get enough of the Tucci. Can't get enough. Um, now, the budget here seems quite large. They have international locations include Iceland, Belgium, Germany, and Kenya. A lot of flashy cinematography. And I learned some things about Assange, maybe that I didn't know. Not, not a lot, but some, I guess. Um, I, I gather he's no fan of this film. He called it propaganda, though uh, he have gather he and Cumberbatch communicated some during the making of the film. Yeah, I guess he told Cumberbatch not to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but he went ahead and did it anyway. And, uh, you know, and I I enjoy how it ends because Cumberbatch, as Assange, basically addresses the movie's so-called lies and distortions directly in an interview at the very end of the film, which I I thought was was very funny. Yeah, I'd love to know what Assange thought of the finished product. Like, the fact that the film kind of addresses it (laughs) <laughs> from his point of view, uh, I thought it was kind of hilarious. Very, yeah. Very meta at the end. Yeah. It's a great way to, to take it out. Oh, me too. Yeah. Um, I mean, the movie's interesting. It doesn't lionize Assange. It doesn't dem- demonize him, but presents him in, a, I think, a fairly complex way. Uh, it feels reasonably accurate, I thought. Um, and I like the performances, the energy of the film, um, you know, some of the American foreign policy details that WikiLeaks revealed, it doesn't really touch upon. I think there was more there it could have could have done. Um, and I really enjoyed Burwell's score again, a lot of percussion, especially in the opening segments. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. Fifth Estate was uh, probably uh, an interesting failure in some respects. I, I mean, the fact that it it has this great cast. There are things that are going to work when you put these kinds of actors in your movie. But but again, once again, you've got a, a, a central uh, person who is is very difficult to be around. you got to spend the whole movie with them. And yes. maybe people decided, ah, I don't really – he's kind of gross. I don't want to have to spend time with that guy. Yeah, I, I guess just the idea of doing the story while it was this hot and getting it on the on film was, was the big attraction, I suppose. Although, you know, maybe it could have been told better – with the passing of time, but, but I thought Cumberbatch did a great job as Assange, who's always come across as fairly pompous and, and high and high and mighty in a lot of ways. And at least this film humanizes him a bit more than the public image or the public perception of him. So he should be thankful for that at least. Yeah, for sure. And it made me think of the recent film that came out in cinemas. She said, which is a movie I quite enjoyed more than, than this film, but it's also about like current day topics. And it's, it tries to make exciting people writing things on computer monitors. It has uh, some of the same challenges as well as, as, as like difficult subject material to sort of get through. But uh, I thought she said was, was more, successful but interesting to compare the two um if i I, probably not a lot of people listening to this went to see she said because i don't think it did very well in cinemas but if it's still playing uh that might be worth going to check out i think a lot of people are thinking i'll get it on streaming it doesn't seem very cinematic yeah yeah that might be fair too um, so we have one last film to talk about from Netflix. It's called Missing Link. And, and this is a good one to to look at, just especially if we're talking about Carter Burwell, because so many animated films have so much music in them to make them work. And this is certainly no exception. Uh, it's written and directed by Chris Butler for Leica Productions, who, of course, are well known for films like Coraline and The Box Trolls. Um, and Butler is also the director of Paranorman, one of their other other films, and the writer of The Marvelous Kubo and The Two Strings, which is, I mean, that's that's more or less their whole body of work right there. 
Um, it's the story of Sir Lionel Frost, a Victorian era, era adventurer, as voiced by Hugh Jackman. He's amazing, by the way, in this. I really loved his his vocal work here. Um, he's not taken seriously by the Society of Great Men, especially the extremely stuffy Lord Piggott Dunsby, who really hates him. He's voiced by <laughs> Stephen Fry in this amazing voice casting. He's also perfectly chosen. So in order to prove himself worthy, um, Lionel Frost uh, wants to be part of this August group. He travels to North America to prove the existence of the Sasquatch, who he rapidly finds and then calls Mr. Link because he doesn't have a name. And he's voiced by Zach Galifianakis as a charming, unassuming, and very literal Bigfoot. Um, and uh, yeah, and so they make a deal. Mr. Link will help Sir Lionel with his need for legitimacy if Lionel will help Mr. Link, or Susan, as he prefers to be called eventually, to find his lost family, the community of Yeti in long-lost Shangri-La. Along the way, they pick up the wife of one of Sir Lionel's former associates, and her name is Adelina Fortnight, who insists <laughs> on coming along. She's voiced by Zoe Saldana, who's also great. Um, and Mr. Stank is on their trail. He's, he's a gun for hire, voiced by Timothy Oliphant. Uh, Rootin' Tootin' Gunslinger. Perfect casting. Yes, really. Again, once again, perfect casting. This movie is so much fun. I was quite charmed by it in its way of of how, I mean, there's a little bit, speaking of the man who would be king, there's a lot of that in this, um, and a debt to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and I also love that we see, we also get a little bit of Emma Thompson, who is amazing as the leader of the Yeti. So what did you make of it, Stephen? Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, I mean, my love of animation is pretty well known, and, and uh, especially uh, stop motion, uh, you know, when it's really good, like say a film like Coraline, which uh, Chris Butler also worked on in a, in a visual capacity on storyboards, I believe. Um, uh, you know, when, when they really click and you can sense the artistry that goes into making a film like this, the intricate models and the, the details. I mean, it's, 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 and then to make it so friggin' funny, uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, because sometimes it doesn't always work. You know, I think of a film like Corpse Bride, which seemed to have all the elements in place, uh, you know, produced by Tim Burton. And somehow it just, that one didn't work for me, despite, you know, how much I love The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, but here, it's just, it's it's comedic, it's heartfelt. Uh, I felt that um, uh, Zach Galifianakis gave a great performance to Susan. Uh, who's sort of takes everything literally and he has some, some great lines and, and is a very sort of heartfelt character, but also very funny. Uh, you know, I, I just felt like everything worked and I'm kind of kicking myself for not seeing it in the theater. And so concludes our look at Carter Burwell, composer extraordinaire, on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, yeah, we need to say uh, that we are available uh, if you want to reach out to give us any notes, any uh, response, any feedback, or just to say hi. We're on Twitter on Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, we're also... Yes, we're still on Twitter. We're still on Twitter. <laughs> and we're also on Facebook. Uh, and Stephen, you and I both have our own Twitter handles. What's yours? I am at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm... Uh, my Twitter handle is named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for making us sound really good. We'll be talking about movies again with you soon, I hope. 
Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.